Thank you for listening to Connection Church's podcast. This week, Brandon Williams continues the series, Blessed or Cursed. Part of living a blessed life is remembering your blessings. Are you only looking at your circumstances or the blessings that occur within those circumstances for your hope? Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good, good, good. Happy 4th of July Wednesday. Very thankful for the freedom we have in this country, the men and women who have paid a price and sacrificed for us to be able to come and worship uh, Jesus and, and, and also thankful for the, the salvation and the freedom we have in Jesus who paid the price for our sin, who uh, broke that bondage over our life. And so today that's why we're here, is to worship him and to celebrate what he's done for us and, and in our lives. Um, Excited to wrap up this Bless or Curse series. been a good series. I've enjoyed it. Um, we're going to start into something else next week. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 103. Um, we'll be getting there in just a second. I want to welcome you. If you haven't been here before, we're glad you're here. If you're an old-timer here at Connection, man, we're glad you're here also um, rejoicing in what the Lord has done um, and just excited about what God would do in your hearts today. Um, Psalm 103, uh, verses 1 and 2. Is what we're going to read to start, and then we'll go through the rest of the psalm as we progress through the message. But uh, I believe that God really wants us to leave here today with a deeper and greater appreciation for what He's done for us. I think so many times we gloss over all that God's done in our lives. We just, it doesn't sink in. And my prayer today is that as we hear the word, as we listen to what God has to say to us as the Spirit of God literally speaks to our hearts. My prayer today is that we leave here with a deeper sense of gratitude and awe and wonder at what God has done for us through Jesus. So let's read these first two verses, Psalm 103, verses 1 and 2. It says, praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Listen to this, praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity to read your word. God, thank you that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts, that we would hear you clearly. And that God, we would not just hear you, but we would respond to your message. And God, that we walk out of here different, changed because you changed our hearts. That we love you and we thank you for the truth and the reality of who you are, the full character of who you are your righteousness, your justice, your love, and your mercy. And we pray, God, that today that would become ever more clear. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to set the message up a little bit like this. This week, um, on Wednesday afternoon, we went to Griffin, um, Georgia. I went with a few other folks from the church, and we had the opportunity to go and do mission work up in Griffin, Georgia. It was hot. I don't know what it is. Last year, I went to Boone. And in the middle of June, and it was the hottest week they'd had like in 10 years. Go up here to uh, uh, Griffin, it was 106 degrees. You know where they put me? On a roof. We decided while we were up there that from now on, like I didn't do roofing for 10 years, I did like wallpaper, you know what I'm saying? Or, Or painting. Interior painting, you know, because everybody finds out I've been, I did roofing for 10 years and and the first place I end up was on a roof. It was so hot. It was so hot that when we would stand up on the shingles, like if you stood there very long, your feet would start sliding because the shingles would literally begin to like the asphalt would slide under your feet. It was so hot. That's hot. And I literally thought two things. The first was if hell is hotter than this, I don't want to go. The second thing I thought, and literally this thought crossed my mind, I was like, man, I wish I was back in my office reading my Bible. I did. That was the, that was the next thought I had. I was like, I wish I was back in my office reading my Bible. And I was like, God, thank you that you had another plan for my life. You know what I'm saying? That this isn't what I do any, er, anymore every day, like all day, that I'm not up here in this heat every day, all day. And, and I really began to appreciate the fact that like, I don't do that anymore. And I got a good friend of mine who's still in that business. And I'm like, dang, stinks to be you. But I'm like, thank God that I don't do that anymore. I mean, I did it for a, a lot of years. And now I'm like, thank you, Lord, that you delivered me, right? And this is the thought I had. I realized this, like, we really can't appreciate our blessings until we've experienced the almost like 
the, the opposite of our blessings, almost like the curse. If we're talking about being blessed or being cursed. It's almost like until we've experienced or been to the cursed side, until we've been to that dark side, until we've been through some pain, we can't appreciate the fact that we don't have pain. Not fully. We really can't appreciate it. And this is the other thing I realized. If we want to, to really live a blessed life, then we need to thank God for our blessings. That's what the psalmist is saying in Psalm 103, verse two. He's basically saying this. Listen, don't forget everything that God's done for you. Don't forget all the blessings that are in your life. And so many times, man, we get to this place where we walk in depression and we walk in all these other things that that are causing us not to live a blessed life. And the reason we're not blessed is because we've forgotten the benefits of a relationship. Excuse me, they have no idea what that was. We've forgotten the benefits of a relationship with God. We've forgotten our blessings and how blessed we really and truly are. I got a pastor friend who says it like this. He said he preached this a couple of weeks ago. I'm too blessed to be depressed. Well, that's so much better than what I got. But too blessed to be depressed. Where you're just in this place where you recognize all the benefits of the Lord. You recognize what God has done in your life. And even when things aren't perfect, you look to Jesus and you realize God has done so much in my life. Literally too blessed to be depressed that you literally walk out of of, of affliction and out of um, circumstances that aren't perfect because you realize that God has done so much for me and my future is secure in him. And so many times I think we gloss over that as Christians. We just don't realize all that God has done in our lives. And in reality, in our relationship with God, we can only see the true hope and the blessing of life in Jesus when we realize the despair of life apart from him. You see, you, that makes it, you can only truly recognize the life and hope that are in Jesus when you realize the real despair and the hopelessness of life apart from him. And today I want to tell you four things that I pray that after you hear these four things that you walk out of these doors and you realize how blessed you are if you are in Christ Jesus. If Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you have surrendered your life to him, you have turned from your ways to him and you are following him. My prayer is that you will walk out of these doors literally too blessed to be depressed, that you walk out of here and you realize that Jesus has done everything and you have so much to be thankful for. The first thing I think we have to come to terms with, the first thing I want to tell you today is this, that your time will expire. Your time will expire. Like just trying to send you out happy, you know what I'm saying? How many of you seen the movie Moneyball? How many of you like the movie Moneyball? Like, if you don't like baseball, you probably did not like that movie, except for the girls who are like, Brad Pitt's in it, you know, so you could watch it. But there was one line in that movie that, that really grabbed my attention. It went something like this. One of the characters in the movie, he says, listen, everybody's told they can't play the game at some point. For some, it's at 18. For some, it's at 40. But everybody's told they can't play the game at some point kind of felt like that coaching my little league baseball team this year. It was such an awesome time. The last game was over and I was like talking to the kids, trying not to cry. It's over. Like, y'all don't cry. <laughs> I loved it, loved doing it. But it came to an end. It was over. And this is really sick, but like I dreamed I got the winning hit in the game we lost. <laughs> I know that's bad, that's pitiful. But that's how much I loved it. But the truth of the matter is, it came to an end. Nothing I can do about it. It came to an end, it stopped. And the same is true in our own lives. And, and, and this is what I want you to see is that for some of us, it's 30 years. For some, it's 40. For some, it's 50. For some, 60. Some, 80. Even 100 years. But at some point, our time expires. It is a reality of life. 10 out of 10 people die. They do. It just happens. And no matter how far we advance in science, no matter how good we take care of our bodies, so I still eat French fries, we're going to die. I love french fries. It just means I'm going to see Jesus before you do. Because they are awesome. Right? And so the reality is that we're going to die. 
The reality is that our time is going to expire. And I want to share just a few scriptures with you that, that talk about this. In the Psalm we're reading, in Psalm 103, in verses 15 and 16, it says, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. It means it is here today and gone tomorrow. In the, the book of James, in James chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, this is what James said about it. He said, Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why do you not even know what will, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. He's like, you're here, you're a mist. And then all of a sudden you're gone. In Job chapter seven, Job is lamenting all that is going out. Job's just, just in despair, crying out to God. And he says, remember, oh God, that my life is but a breath. That my life is but a breath, my eyes will never see happiness. He's like, God, my life is short. I need you to step in. Then you jump over to Psalm 39, 5. It says, you have made my days a mere hand's breath. Breath. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Each man's life is but a breath. Do you hear that? He's like, this is your life. This is your life and it's done. Our time expires. Psalm 144, four, continues on. Man is like a breath. His days are like a fleeting shadow. Just like shadows are here one minute and gone the next. He says, that is our life. And the reality of it all is this, that we may live to be 80, 90, 100 years old, But in the span of eternity, in light of eternity, it is that. And it is gone. The reality is, our time does expire. I want to say this before we get too far in this message. Like, I'm not trying to scare you, okay? I'm just telling you what the scripture says. And everything we're going to talk about today, I want you to understand that we're going to read a bunch of scripture. And we're going to take this straight out of the Bible. But I want you to understand that Until we see the despair and hopelessness apart from Jesus, we cannot truly appreciate the blessing of life in him. Now that you're all depressed, the second one is going to get a lot lighter. It's going to make you feel a lot better. So the first thing is this, that our time will expire. It's short. The second is this, hell is a real place. Let's go home. But hell is a real place. And see, here's the thing. Scripture speaks clearly to the reality of eternity. It speaks clearly. Scripture speaks clearly to it. And so does our own heart, does it not? That there is something inside of us that tells us there is more to life than the 70, 80, 90, 100 years we spend here. There is something in our heart that speaks to that. The scripture tells us in Ecclesiastes 3.12 that the reason for that is because God has set eternity in the hearts of man. There's something in us that tells us that there's more to life than what we're experiencing right now. That it goes on beyond the short amount of years that we have here on earth. Even your own intuition tells you that you know that. How many of you have been to a funeral? When we get there, man, the whole fact of the matter is we talk about people still existing. And you may even deny the fact that your own intuition and your own heart indicates to you that there's something beyond this life and this existence. But as soon as someone passes that is immediate family member or someone we love, when we go to the funeral, the first thing we talk about is that they're existing somewhere else, right? And typically everybody goes to heaven at funerals, don't they? It doesn't matter like how bad they were. Everybody goes to heaven. Like I want one preacher to stand up and be like, that dude, ain't no way he got in. No way. But the reality of it is there's something inside of us that tells us that eternity exists, that it continues on. The problem for us, the problem for the church is this, we've ignored it. 
We have ignored it. We have become so fixated on the fact that when we are in Christ, that we go to heaven, that we've ignored the fact that hell is even a real place and then it really exists. The pendulum in the church has swung so far and understand it needed to swing a little bit, right? We swung so far from the messages of hellfire and brimstone. Everybody's going to hell. Foosball, you're going to hell. You know what I'm saying? It's like we swung so far from that that we didn't come to the middle where we talk about a balanced theology of the gospel that Jesus has saved us from hell, that we can have life in Christ, that we went so far that now typically the bulk of our message, the bulk of the, the scriptures we read, the parts, it's like, it's like we eat a watermelon when we come to scripture. We, we swallow the parts we like and we spit out the parts we don't like and we ignore everything that scripture tells us about the fact that eternity is long and that hell is hot. And we ignore it and we turn a deaf ear to it because our desire as the church is this, we want to be accepted. We want to be politically correct. And in the world we live in, to talk about the fact that there is a real place called hell, it's unacceptable. We're narrow-minded, we're fools. Here's the deal, guys. I'm going to be foolish enough to tell you the truth. I'm not going to stand before God one day having sugarcoated this. The reality, guys, the greatest reality is that there is a hell. That it is hot. That our time here is short. And eternity is long. There's also the other reality. That we can have life in Christ. And I want you to see that. See, here's what's happened. We, we have avoided talking about the reality of hell so long. So long. That literally what we've done is we've cheapened grace. We have cheapened grace. And so we stand up here and we tell people, you can be forgiven. It's awesome. Come to Jesus. Be forgiven. For what? Why do I need to be forgiven? And even for those of us who have come to Christ and the Holy Spirit has drawn us to him, we get to this place where it's like we don't fully appreciate what Jesus did for us on the cross. We don't fully appreciate all that he has done in our lives because we simply have not seen the alternative. And as I was studying this, I want to be very honest with you. I was challenged. One, do I truly believe that hell is a real place? I was challenged. And then I got a sick knot in my stomach because I realized like, my God, I don't want to, I don't want to be there. I, I don't, and I don't want other people to be there. And then we come to this place where it's like, I could take my five-year-old, my six-year-old now, I could take him and I could hold a lighter up under his hand and be like, son, do you feel that? Yeah, I feel that. Hell's going to be worse than that. You want to accept Jesus? No six-year-old in their right mind is going to be like, no. I can do that with my, my nine-year-old. Boy, you feel that? You like the smell of burning flesh? I didn't think so. You want to do that for eternity? And so there's this real thing that I don't want to try to scare people into the kingdom of heaven. I don't want to try to scare people into trusting in Jesus as their savior. But here's the thing that I also don't want to do. I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact that there are ramifications. There are consequences to the decisions that we make. And this is serious. This is eternal. It's bigger than what you're facing at work and your family or anything else. Listen, this is eternal. And just the fact that I would say that is repulsive to many people. And yet we would call ourselves evangelical Christians, people who believe the word of God. But we've got to get to a place where we realize we cheapen grace. We can't see the true blessing of Jesus and the true blessing of God that he's given us through Christ because we don't really see the need for it. We don't see what happens when our sin is truly separated from us. Listen, we typically place value on things based on the perception of our need for it, don't we? You ever been real hungry? Like even at a Braves game, you get hungry enough, you'll pay $10 for a hamburger. 
outrageous. Like you would never do that. You pull up to McDonald's and they're like, um, I, w- I want a Big Mac. And they're like, that's 10 bucks. You keep driving. Why? You can go to another fast food place. Braves game, you're like there. You know you're there for a couple more hours. You're like $10. Okay. You're hungry. We place higher value on food when we're hungry. We place higher value on water when we're thirsty. The thing that we don't do is we don't place a lot of value on our relationship with Jesus and what Jesus has done for us on the cross, taking our sin, taking the punishment we deserve and dying in our place, being separated from God so we would never have to be. One of the reasons we do not place a high value on that relationship is because we truly do not realize what God has saved us from. I want you to hear some of the scriptures out of the New Testament that Jesus actually spoke today. Um, he, he, these are all out of Matthew. You can go through uh, Mark and Luke and John and, and, and you can find these scriptures in, in those two. So I just pulled these out of Matthew because it's easier to flip in my Bible and find them. So chapter five, verse 21 and 22, listen to this. This is Jesus speaking. Verse 21, you have heard it heard that it was said to people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, I I, I got nothing on that, Raka. Um, I'm just gonna start saying that. Nobody will know what I'm talking about. Be like, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. That kind of freak anybody else out. Like you call somebody a fool and you go to hell. What's up with that, Jesus? Like, cause you probably did that on the way to church today. You probably did that and turned it in the parking lot. Like somebody cut you off and you're like, you fool, idiot. And Jesus is like, you're in danger of the hell, flames of hell. The next one is in Matthew 8, verse 11 and 12. It says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This one like gets me because it says, and many will come. Many will come. And recognize the fact that I'm not in Christ. People who were supposedly going to be in the kingdom and yet they realize that I never knew him. Matthew 10, 28 says this, do not be afraid, and this is Jesus speaking about the, the religious people, the preachers of his day, basically. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. These are the words of Jesus, the one that we picture so many times with the long flowing hair and the big blue eyes, right? And, and this holding the lamb and snuggling with the lamb. This is that Jesus who is talking about the fact that hell is a real place. Matthew 13 in verses 40 and 43, 43, 43, Jesus is talking about how they're, they're, the kingdom of heaven is like weeds that have been planted in with the grain and that there'll be a day when the weeds are pulled up and that they're thrown into the fire. And Jesus says this, as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Over in Matthew chapter 18, verses eight and nine, Jesus says this, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. There's a nice thought. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. What is Jesus? Jesus saying, this is serious, people. It'd be better for you to walk through this life maimed than to, be, to spend eternity separated from God. Chapter 23, you'll like this one, verse 33. He's speaking to the Pharisees, basically the preachers, the religious leaders of that day. And he says, you snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? Like he told the preachers, go to hell. Y'all don't amen that, right? 
Basically saying, listen, you will not escape hell. You brood of vipers. 2546, Jesus said this. After he's talking about the sheep and the goats and those followers of of Christ, the sheep will be separated from the goats, those who don't follow Christ. He says, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Jesus is very clear that we do spend eternity somewhere and apart from him, we spend it in hell. A place of eternal torment. People are trying to erase hell. Even Francis Chan even wrote a book called Erasing Hell. One well-known pastor wrote a book called Love Wins, basically saying everybody is accepted in the end. But the reality of that is not taught in Scripture. The reality of it is we don't get a second chance, another time to make a decision. Our opportunity is now. Our opportunity to follow Christ is now, to put our faith in Him is now. If you go on through Scripture, you see where Paul talked um, more, Paul talked more about the wrath to come, the judgment to come, and, and, and um, what God was going to do at the end of the world more than he talked about anything else, more than he talked about grace, more than he talked about mercy, more than he talked about any other topic. If you read Jude, you read James, you read First Peter, Second Peter, you begin to see God talks about this topic a lot. And somehow we swept it away. We've ignored the fact that it exists And this is what I want you to hear today. I want you to understand this. We have to realize that God's wrath against sin will be satisfied in hell or on the cross. Which one we choose is up to us. We've got to realize that God, yes, God is love. The Bible says God is love, but we can't take one thing that the Bible says God is and throw out the rest. The Bible also says that he is just and he is righteous. And if God does not punish sin, then he is unrighteous. God cannot go against his character. He has to punish sin. And see here, we all sit here and justice is good in our mind. When we hear about a rape or we hear about a molestation or we hear about any of these things, justice needs to be done until we turn around and that justice is focused on us. And then it's not so comfortable. It's not something we scream for. It's not something we desire. But the reality of it is we deserve judgment for our sins against God. Here's the most common objection. Y'all ready? Y'all, some of y'all probably already thought this. How could a good God send good people to hell? Anybody already thought that this morning? Somebody did. Don't raise your hand. Somebody already thought that. How could a good God send good people to hell? And I'll answer that for you. He won't. He won't. God will not send good people to hell. The problem is nobody's good. There's been one good person to walk the face of this earth and his name is Jesus. One good person. Isaiah, in in Isaiah 64, 6, he said it like this. He says, your most righteous deeds are like filthy rags before God. Put that in perspective. Leviticus 12, 2 is what he was referring to. In that scripture, he's talking about the uncleanness that the, the, the Jews observed when a woman was having her menstrual period. And the rags he's referring to are menstrual rags. And he says, your most righteous deeds, my most righteous deeds are filthy rags before a holy God. See, if we think that God sends good people to hell, the reason we think that is because we have no concept of the holiness and the goodness of God. He is so far above us that no amount of good we could do could ever stack up to who he is. He's so far beyond us in his goodness and his holiness that even our most righteous deeds fall so far short of the goodness and the glory of God. That's why the scripture is true that all have sinned and fallen short. So that God is just, and this is the thing I know, we will not stand before God and question any decision he's made. Because he's holy and he's perfect. He's right and he's just. He makes just and right decisions. Romans 3.10 
is another scripture that points to this. 310 through 12, it says this. Verse 10, we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. This is Paul. He's actually quoting out of Psalms and Ecclesiastes 7.20. He's saying, no one's done good. In comparison to God, no one has done good. What that does is it puts us all in the same boat. It puts us all in the same place. And basically that place is this, that you and I on our own merit have no right to spend eternity with a holy God. Period. And here's the thing we don't understand. We have no idea what life completely separated from God's goodness is like. No idea. No idea what it is like to be completely separated from the goodness of God. The Bible says that every good and perfect gift comes from God. Separation from God equals separation from everything that's good. We have no idea what that's like. Listen to me. Even in the most tragic situation on earth, the thing that you could think of and that that would be the worst situation you could possibly encounter on earth, separation from a loved one, loss of job, loss of money, whatever it might be, your most tragic situation, what you would define as hell on earth does not touch complete separation from God. And here's the reason. Even in hell on earth, there is still an essence of God's goodness that surrounds us. God is so good that he even pours out his goodness on those who are far from him. The Bible says that he sends the rain on the just and the unjust. We have no comprehension of what it is like to be separated from God completely. The curse of sin and death culminates. It it peaks, it climaxes. An eternal separation from him, from everything that is good. I was thinking about that this week and I thought about Jesus on the cross. And I thought about the fact that on the cross, Jesus cried out to God. And he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me, Lord? And I started thinking about the fact that Jesus is really the only person who was completely separated from God. See, the reason that Jesus literally had second thoughts about going to the cross, the reason Jesus was like God in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's praying, the reason Jesus was like, Lord, listen, God, if there's a plan B, I'm all about hearing it. It wasn't because he was going to die on the cross. It was painful, but it was a brief moment. I'm sure that played into it a little bit. But the reality of it was he knew that he would be separated from God, forsaken. That the curse that we rightly deserved of being separated from Jesus or from God for eternity was going to be placed upon his life. And that's why he could truly cry out, why have you forsaken me? The first time ever. And you've got to understand, Jesus had been with God the Father from the beginning And he'll be with him to the end, right? He had been with him all that time except for the blip on the cross where the wrath of God and the the curse of sin was poured out on his life and he was separated from God. And when I think about that now and I look at that now, I'm blown away. I look at what Jesus did and the fact that he became a curse, that he was forsaken, that he was separated so I don't have to be that I can't be good enough to get to God. And when I think about what was in store for me, eternal separation from my heavenly father, eternal separation from anything and everything that is good, eternal torment because I've been separated from him forever. And I look at the fact that Jesus paid a price he didn't have to pay. He, he, He became a curse he didn't have to become. He suffered and was punished for the sins that I committed. It makes me have much more gratitude for what Jesus did for me. And I begin to realize how blessed I am. I begin to realize that God has done an incredible work in my life. 
The third thing I want to talk about is, is this fact that hell is the backdrop upon which the full beauty of Jesus and the gospel is seen. You see that we can't fully appreciate what Jesus did on the cross until we realize what we actually deserve. We can't fully appreciate what Jesus did for us until we realize what should have been done to us. Is anybody tracking with this? The fact that we deserve eternal hell, but through Jesus we have eternal life. That's the greatest reality in the world. My prayer is that now we can possibly read Psalm 103, beginning in verse 3. Let's go back to verse 2. And it would have so much more meaning. It has so much more impact on our lives. When the psalmist, when David writes these words, he says, praise the Lord, O my soul. And in, in an attitude of worship, he begins to proclaim this. He says, forget not all his benefits. I would tell you this, people, this is why we get to church at 1040, is anticipation of singing songs to God. Don't get there at 1040, get there at 1040. Because we're singing songs to this God who has blessed us in incredible ways. It's not a formality we go through where we just stand up and sing a couple of songs and sit down so we can hear the message. We're worshiping the God of the universe who paid the ultimate price so that we wouldn't have to be separated from him for eternity. We're worshiping him. We're praising him through music, through song. And he says, don't forget his benefits. And listen to verse three, he says, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. Does it mean a little bit more when you think about what we could have experienced for eternity that now our sins are forgiven? He's wiped them away through Jesus and through our faith in his son, through our faith in his righteousness and not our own. Literally, while I was preparing this message and I was thinking about the reality of this and the reality of what scripture says, the thing that kept going over and over and over again in my heart was, God, I want to cling to him. I want to hold on to him. I realize I can't trust in my own righteousness to get to heaven. God, I suck. I need Jesus. That's the one thought I kept having over and over and over again. I can't make it apart from him. I want to hold on to him with everything that I am because I do not want to stand in front of you on my own merit. I want the righteousness of Jesus Christ to cover my life. I want to have the confidence of a child of God that when I stand before him, he doesn't see me. He sees Christ in his goodness that my sins have been wiped away. I've been healed. He says, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion? He says, I don't only redeem you, but I crown you with my love. I invite you into my royal family. I crown you with love. I crown you with compassion. He says, I satisfy your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the the eagles. He says, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. Listen to this. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. It says that he is slow to anger. How many of you could be thankful this morning for the patience of God in your life? How many of you can say God's been a little bit patient with you getting you to this point of trusting in his son? Holy cow, if I were God, I'd have killed y'all a long time ago. But he's patient and he's long-suffering and he gives us opportunity and he's slow to anger and he's compassionate and he's a loving father and God has given us opportunity to come to faith in his son that we could have a right, that we could be clothed in righteousness. That our robes, our, 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 our sins could be made white as snow. We could be forgiven. And listen, to this is awesome. It says he does not treat our sins or treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquity. That ought to be some good news to somebody in this place today. That our sins don't get paid back what they deserve. But that Jesus took that on the cross for us, that we could be set free from the bondage of sin and death and given life in Christ. That's why we celebrate salvations. That's why we celebrate baptisms is because we're watching, literally watching people make a decision to go from death to life in Christ. That's why we do what we do. He says, as far 
For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the love for those who fear him. His love for those who fear him. And listen to this. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. You know, you can go east as far as you want to and never go west. You can go west as far as you want to and never go east. Basically, what God is saying is when you come to faith in Christ, you trust in me for righteousness. Here's the reality. Your sin never touches you again. It is removed. It is gone. I've separated it from you. It's a blessing. It's a benefit of Christ, the blessing of God. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. He knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone and its place remembers it no more. In other words, God is saying, I know your frailty. I know your weakness. I know you can't do this on your own. I know you can't make it another day on your own. I know you're struggling in your job. I know you're struggling in your family. I know you're struggling in your finances. I know you're struggling with your rebellious children. I know you're struggling just to smile, but here's the reality. I know your frailty. I've experienced your frailty. And if you'll trust in me, I can renew your strength. He knows us. He knows what we've been through. He knows. And yet he says this, but from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. He's saying, listen, you may be frail and you may be weak and your strength may fail, but mine never will. It is everlasting to everlasting. My love is for you. It has been given to you. I died on the cross so that I could know you. I gave up my rights as God to come and walk the earth as a human being so that I could die for you. He's saying from everlasting to everlasting, my love expands eternity. And though you are weak, and though you are frail and your days are short, my love will be with you forever. It's an amazing God. An amazing God. The last thing I want to tell you and talk to you about is our response. Because the despair of hell and the hope of the gospel should impact every area of our life. It literally should change how we live. I'll say one the despair of hell and the hope of the gospel should impact every area of our life. The first way it does this is that we should live with urgency. We should live with urgency, realize that every breath is a gift from God that we've been given to use for his kingdom. Every breath. I go to the gym and I'm going to be honest with you. If anybody says their hobby is going to the gym, your hobby stinks. That is not fun. You need another hobby. Because I go to the gym. I, I'm just be honest with you. Except for the fellowship I have with some of the people there, I hate every minute. I won't even pretend to like it. But I go because I eat French fries. And when, when I get there, like, the guy I work out with is always like, what do you want to do to warm up? I'm like, warm up? He's like, yeah, warm up. I'm like, I ain't wasting a set. Like, put the weight on there. Let's do this. Let's get it done. Like, I want to get this finished. You know, and my muscles hurt and my bones are creaking. You get to be my age and stuff starts cracking that used to not crack. I'm like, I ain't wasting a set. I'm not wasting an opportunity to get this done. And I feel like as the church, we don't have that sense of urgency. If we would say, God, I set my heart on fire that in light of hell and, and the despair that goes with it and the hope of the gospel, set my heart on fire with an urgency to reach the lost where I work at the ball field in my family. That I wouldn't let uncomfortable stand in the way of proclaiming the truth. That we push through uncomfortable to share the gospel and the love of Jesus. It should literally be like a wake up call should be something that shakes us at the core of who we are. When I was little, we'd go to the gym. I'd go with my mom and dad, me and my cousin. And we would do this little game where you got in the hot tub. While they were working, they didn't know this. We'd get in the hot tub, get real hot, jump out and run to the pool and jump in. We didn't know that that would stop your heart. And so we just did it over and over and over and over again. 
And I'm going to tell you what, you talking about some cold water? When I jumped out of the hot tub and into the, it's like, and somehow we like that. I don't, I don't know why. But instantly you're like, that's how this should be. The realization of hell and the despair of hell. When we look at the despair of hell and the hope of the gospel and the hope in Jesus, it ought to give us a sense of urgency. It should be a wake up call that moves us forward. The second thing that our response should be is that we should live with our eyes open. Psalm 103, 7 says that he made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. In other words, God has revealed his plan. We need to be living with our eyes open, realizing that God has called us to be a part of his plan, to proclaim the good news of Jesus to, to people. And it's not as hard as you think. Like sharing the gospel, you don't have to have a PhD in theology. In fact, it's probably better that you don't. All you got to do is be able to tell people who you were before Christ, how you met Christ and who you are now. And the heart change that took place in you. That is your witness. That's what God has done before Christ, met Christ, conversion, and then after Christ. Just tell them. Just tell them, share it when opportunity gives it. Have your eyes open to see it. Listen, man, we had the greatest message of the greatest rescue that's ever taken place. God rescuing sinners and making us saints. There's not one person in here today that I look at and go, well, there's a saint. But the reality of it is, in Christ, Paul never addresses a church in an epistle and says to all the sinners in Corinth. No, he addresses them as saints. And that's what we're made through Christ. It's a blessing. It's a benefit of being in Jesus. And we have this story of the greatest rescue that's ever taken place. When I was in college, I was doing framing. It was my first construction job. Gosh, I got so many sermon illustrations from that first construction job. My eyes were like open. And I was working. I came home at lunch. I'd come home and try to take a little nap. One day I'm laying on the couch. Somebody knocks on the door. I go to the door. There's a lady standing there. She's going, my house is on fire. It's like, I'm sorry. And I shut the door and went back to sleep. I didn't. I really didn't. But... I was like, what can I do? She's like, I don't know, call the fireman. So my mom happened to be there. She calls the, the, the fire department. I run over on the way in the house. I do not know like what possessed me to do this. I have no idea. But I ran by, I grabbed a water hose. I turned on the water. I kinked the water hose. I'm walking through the house with a water hose. Smoke coming out everywhere. I'm walking through the house with a water hose. No shirt on. I'm just looking around. I'm like, I don't see a fire. I walk into the kitchen and look to the left. It's like, like, there it is. And I took the water hose. I put it on it. I sprayed it all down. I wet it all down real good. Got the fire out, kinked the hose back up, walked back out the front door, threw the hose down, turned the water off, walked back over to the house. Right when I'm walking back to the house, the firemen pull up and they're like, what's going on? I was like, that was a fire. I put it out. I ain't much left to do. I would go over there and check it, but I think I, I think I got it. They were like laughing. They were like, this dude's nuts. And so then, from then on, everybody that asked me, like, what you been doing? Putting out fires. I told everybody, I was like, what a rescue. I don't even know, like, I would not do that again. But I went and put the fire out, walked back out, done. It's an awesome rescue. Told everybody about it. Telling you about it. It was cool, man. It was awesome. The reality of it is, we talk about great rescues. We see them on television, man. The greatest rescue that's ever happened was Jesus rescuing us from our sin and saving us for eternity. The last thing I would tell you that our response to this should be is that we should rejoice. We should rejoice. We should live blessed because we don't forget God's blessings, the benefits of Christ that are always fresh, that are always relevant, and that are always life-giving for us. When we view what could have been with what the reality is for us in Jesus, we should rejoice. It's why Paul could rejoice when he's writing the book of Philippians and he's literally in a Roman prison. And literally the stench of death is in his nostrils and he knows I'm probably the next one to die. And yet he writes the book and he says rejoice. And again I say rejoice. Because he knows that no matter what happens, he is blessed in Christ. This future is secure. We're in with this. Psalm 103, 20. It says, praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, 
oh my soul. This is such an awesome scripture when you look at it because he says, praise him, all the heavens, all the angels, praise him. Everything in heaven, everything in the universe, sing his praises for what he's done, for his goodness and the blessings that he's given us. And then he looks and he says, all the earth, praise him, lift him up, exalt him for his goodness and the blessings that he's bestowed upon us, that he's given us. All the earth, lift him up. And then he gets to the end and he says, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Is it not amazing that you and I can come to the God of the universe and that our praise is not lost in the praise of the universe and the heavens or the praise of all the earth, but that God hears our praise. That when we sing of his blessings and his benefits, that our soul rejoices with all of creation. And yet we're not lost in that. We should rejoice for the blessings that God has poured on us, not as just as a people or as the world, but as an individual that he knows the number of hairs on your head, that he sings over your life according to scripture. When we are in Christ, he sees us as Jesus. Our soul should rejoice in what Jesus has done for us. That's the reality, guys, of of what God has done. He knew our time is short. He knew we could not get to him on our own. Our righteousness was far too insufficient. Yet he made a way through his son to know him. He would pay the debt we couldn't pay, that he would become the sin and the punishment for that sin that we deserved. He was literally a substitute for us meaning he stepped in our place that we could have eternal life in him. It just makes me want to grab onto it and thank him. As if somebody had just rescued me out of the ocean, swimming for my life. And the reality now is that God has saved me. This is what I want to do. I'm going to pray while I'm praying. I'm going to ask you like today, right now, that you don't know Jesus. You've never had a personal relationship with him, but you know that God has knocked on the door of your heart today and you want to have a relationship with him. Listen, I, want to, I almost want to talk you out of responding to this. Because all the talk of hell, I don't want to scare you into heaven. I want to scare you into some emotional response, but this is what I would ask you. You know that the Lord has knocked on the door of your heart and he has spoken to your heart about your need for a relationship with Jesus Christ. This is what I'm going to ask you to do. When I'm praying, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet as an act of faith saying, I'm going to cling to Jesus. I need the righteousness of Christ in my life. I need the life of Jesus to be mine. As I pray, you can stand. I can tell you when you stand, we're going to rejoice. You're going to celebrate like crazy your decision to follow Christ. I tell you this, if your heart's beating, you know that you're supposed to respond. Don't think twice. You just move. 